This is Buried in Our Past, Hidden Histories podcast of Westport Museum for History and Culture, produced by Factory Underground, where you'll hear untold accounts of American history. Thanks for joining us. I'm Ramin Gadishram, the Executive Director of the Westport Museum for History and Culture, with my friend and our chairperson, Greg Peretta. Hello, Ramin. Hello, Greg. Nice to to see see you. You too. Absolutely. So, Greg, I want to tell you a story that is kind of one of those amazing finds for us Mm -hmm. as public historians in the museum world. The kind of finds that can happen once in a lifetime or twice, if you're lucky. And that is really speaking to the mission of our organization of uncovering untold histories. During the pandemic, when everybody was closed down and nobody could work together, we were struggling to find ways to do our work of making history whole. And one of my colleagues, our research manager, Sarah Krasny, and I decided that one thing we could do by the summer of 2020 was uh, working outside because it was outdoors. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the late summer, it became very clear that it was possible to uh, work together if you were outside, you were not in an enclosed space. And so we decided what we were going to do was take down all the epitaphs of Evergreen Cemetery in Westport. Evergreen Cemetery is a very small cemetery in a residential community. It's the cemetery of the Saugatuck Congregational Church, which, in fact, is the church where uh, the town of Westport as an entity was created, essentially. So Westport, just quick refresher, colonized in 1648 in the Greens Farms region. It was called the West Parish of Fairfield. It was part of the town of Fairfield. The church was the Greens Farms Congregational Church. As the town expanded to what is today the downtown, which is closer to the city of Norwalk, some prominent men decided that it was too far to go to Greens Farms Church, They needed a new town church. Saugatuck Congregational was found. And then those same men decided we need to really incorporate our own town of Westport, not as part of Fairfield and Norwalk, which it was, but as its own thing. And that happened. So meeting at that church, these men kind of carved Westport out of Fairfield, Norwalk, and a little bit of Weston, Mm -hmm. a little bit of Wilton, too. That's how Westport came to be. And so this same church, Saugatuck Congregational Church, essentially the founding church of what became the town of Westport, Mm -hmm. has a little cemetery near to its property in a residential community. And so we decided what we would do is write down all the epitaphs because, you know, the wear and tear of these stones means that sometimes this information often is lost to history. And we thought, well, this is something we can do. We can make sure that this material, this information isn't lost to history. In doing this, we found an enclosure in the back of the churchyard, way in the back, that was actually very beautiful, clearly very expensive, beautiful wrought iron fence, a whole family together in the back. So they were very prominent, clearly, because they had money, but somehow were in the back, and we couldn't quite figure out why. So Sarah decides she's going to start digging into this family and figure out who they are. And the family was called Adair. Benjamin Adair was there with his wife, Ursula, his daughter, Ursula, his young twins who had died, his son, Samuel, uh, who died as an adult, and other members of the family. So in digging into this family, the Adair family, we found some interesting things. So a man named Benjamin Adair, we believe, had been enslaved in South Carolina in 
the mid-1800s. We don't know this for a fact, except he is listed in what was called the Freedmen's Bank Records, which was a bank that was created very specifically to service the needs of emancipated enslaved people in New York. And in 1850, we see him in this bank uh, along with his wife, Ursula Mingo. So Benjamin Adair comes up to New York City in 1850 from the Carolinas. He meets his wife there, Ursula Mingo, who is part Shinnecock. She's part of the Shinnecock Nation, which is a tribal community, native tribal community on Long Island. It's not quite directly, but across the Long Island Sound from Westport, from Fairfield County. They're actually from Southampton, which is across Long Island Sound, but on the south side of the island. Okay. And they meet there and they get married. And while he's in New York City, he's working for a man named Morris Ketchum. So Morris Ketchum is a really interesting person. He lived in New York, but he also lived in Westport in a house that's still there called Hockenham, an 18th century house. And Morris Ketchum is interesting in American history because he helped finance the Civil War. So prior to the 20th century, generally what would happen in wars was that private funders would have to finance it. It wasn't this big war chest in the Treasury Department that could fund a war. Right. Wealthy men during the Revolutionary War, one such man was a man called Robert Morris in Philadelphia who lent the Continental Congress a lot of money for right. the Revolutionary War. Same thing in the Civil War. So Morris Ketchum would often meet with his old friend who was Lincoln's Treasury Secretary about how do we fund this war. He gave some of his own money. He asked for money from other bankers. Um, he kind of helped the war effort by figuring out how do you pay for this on the yeah. Union side. In fact, Lincoln's Treasury Secretary often visited Westport uh -huh. to see Morris Ketchum during the course of the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So our friend Benjamin Adair is in New York City working for Morris Ketchum uh, as a waiter. And when Ketchum decides to spend more of his time, move out to Westport, Connecticut, where he has this house, Hockenham, Benjamin moves with him, with his wife, Ursula, and he buys, with Ketchum's help, a building lot near what would become the New York New Haven Railroad, near what is today the Westport Saugatuck Railroad Station. Mm -hmm. So because this New York New Haven Railroad is about to be built and it's running through Westport, right through what is the Adair land, Benjamin Adair's little plot of land, right. he sells it for nine times what he buys it for. So here's this formerly, we believe, enslaved man, comes up from the Carolinas. He's first in New York, and now he's in Westport with Ketchum, where he's working as a groomsman. He's working in the stable. He's working with the horses. Right. And suddenly he's doing really well for himself. And so with that money, he buys nine acres of property, sort of bordered to Morris Ketchum's estate. Clearly, Ketchum helped him in terms of sort of speaking for him, because remember, it's 1850, it's the 1850s, enslavement in Connecticut has only ended a few years before in 1848. Right. At this period of time, black men cannot vote. And this goes back to 1818, when Connecticut adopts its constitution. It includes a race requirement. Previously, it was you had to be a landowner. You had to own a certain amount of personal property. You had to be peaceable. You had to be a man, and you could vote and be 21 years of age. In 1818, they got rid of the land requirement, which Benjamin would have actually fulfilled had it existed, and included a race requirement of being white. So here he is. He has nine acres of land. 
in Westport. He works for a prominent man. He's running his land as a homestead farm that, by the accounts, the agricultural accounts of the time, very successful, cannot vote for his own interests. Somehow, he manages to be wealthy and successful, despite having no protection under law, despite hostility. People can go back and listen to our episode about the Civil War to understand how not pro-abolition Westport in Connecticut was. So you can imagine it wasn't exactly the warmest and welcomingest environment for someone like Benjamin Adair and his family. But he did have a warm relationship with the Ketchums. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So Benjamin Adair, his property is actually at a location that is right off exit 42 in the Merritt Parkway, which probably one of the most horrible intersections in all of Connecticut, right? It's like Route 57 and 136, which is also Main Street. And and there's this strange triangle and you feel like you're going to die every time you try to go through it and weird stop signs. It's awful, right? But uh, right there is where the Adair property property was. Um, And today that property is technically called on the map Glynn's Corners, which in itself is a pointed name because the largest landowner on that corner was Benjamin Adair. But it's named after the much smaller landowner whose land didn't even abut that uh, roadway, a man named Glynn who was white. So Benjamin and his wife Ursula are doing very well. They're very prosperous. A notable aspect about this this prominent black family of mid-19th century Westport is that they were clearly very concerned with education. Benjamin gives his wife a beautiful book on their wedding day, and it's inscribed on their wedding day. It's a novel uh, that he wants her to have. So his wedding gift to her is a book. We later made connection with the family. I'll tell you that story in a minute. And in fact, received a plethora of their papers including books upon books upon books. Mm. So this was a prosperous family. They lived in a homestead farm. They did very well for themselves. The the Adairs had children, girls and a boy. Unfortunately, their eldest, their son, their only son, dies as a relatively young man, Mm. leaving behind a young wife and a daughter. We believe that young wife might have been a distant relative, also from the Shinnecock Nation. But this bond with the Ketchums is so clear because we received this material from the family. Uh And there's a beautiful letter from Mrs. Ketchum, Margaret Ketchum, written to Ursula Adair on the death of her very young child. And in this, she basically says, um, she talks about the relationship of her family to Benjamin. And she says, may Christ, that best of friends, help and comfort you, my poor Ursula and Benjamin, who I need not say is to me like one of my own family. So this is like a doyen of Westport society. And this really interesting sort of connection between the two. But the Adair story kind of takes a turn, right? So by the third generation, the grandchildren of the Adairs, right? They're still here in Westport. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the time they leave Westport, they have been here for nearly 100 years. Benjamin dies in the late 1800s. His son um, dies before him. Right. There's no one to continue this farm, right. which is making money. It's a prosperous farm. But the women are there and the women are educators 
interestingly enough. We have wonderful images of them teaching. We have Staples High School class of 1918 commencement oh, wow. and yearbook pictures of the Adair girls wow. uh, doing really well for themselves. Mm -hmm. But by the 1930s and the 1940s, something happens. So the girls move away. One gets married. One is a teacher in New York City. She's quite successful. They're sending money back for the maintenance of this farm, but it's not enough money. And they're falling into tax arrears. Mm -hmm. And then something pretty nefarious happens. So the Merritt Parkway is being planned. This is, you know, the 1930s. Yeah. It's being planned. And it goes through essentially the back of their property. It's not on their property, but it goes through the back of their property and that of their neighbors. And... I don't know how much you know about these sort of like municipal projects, what happens when roadways go through communities, what happens to the land abutting the highway, what happens to its value? It goes down. Yeah. Suddenly the highway is your backyard. Your property isn't worth as much, right? right? So in fact, all the property in that particular area, it does get reassessed at mm -hmm. a lower value. Everyone's except the Adair property. The Adair property becomes doubled in value, meaning the town of Westport decides that while everybody else's property is losing value because of the Merritt Parkway basically being in the backyard, right. the Adair property, which is in tax arrears as it is, suddenly is worth twice what it had been the year before. And the tax assessment is twice mm. what it had been the year before. So the women of the family basically kind of go on and try to keep it together. And within a couple of years, the property is taken by the town for not failure to pay taxes and auctioned to mm. the highest bidder. So we talk about this story for a couple of reasons, right? Good and bad reasons. It's an amazing story of black resilience right. and success right. in a world that was really the odds were incredibly stacked mm -hmm. against this family. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly incredible story of a family that loved education, right? Mm -hmm. Generation after generation of the Adairs and their descendants to this day yeah. are educators, mm. women educators. But it's also a story about how townships and places like Westport and places like Connecticut that didn't have Jim Crow segregation, right. did not have legal segregation, affected segregation right. by other means. In this case, using the tax laws right. to push out a family that they simply did not want here. Mm -hmm. In this same period of time, we have reports from the Westport Weston Health District health inspector talking about a black boarding house at 22 and a half Main Street, which is also an incredibly interesting story yeah. um, that uh, kind of came to a head about 15 to 20 years after the Adairs lost their homestead. But at this period of time, when they were having their struggles, the health inspector um, wrote a report about how this black boarding house in downtown Westport was a health hazard to the community, mm -hmm. simply by virtue of the fact that black residents were somehow particularly prone to creating unsanitary conditions. Of course, patently untrue. Mm -hmm. But this was the sentiment in which this family was existing. So for us, we look at this story and we kind of examine the ways that systemic Racism can be affected without the rule of law, but just as successfully. So even though the Adair descendants had lost their property in Westport, they still went on and they thrived and 
they survived, right? So they had daughters and they had granddaughters. One of their daughters, who um, was also called Ursula, like her mother, actually did marry a man by the name, last name of Dorsey, and they mm-hmm. lived on Davenport Avenue in Westport and had children here and actually lived here for a long time. The mm-hmm. family homestead was lost. The sad part about that loss is that when Benjamin Sr., when Benjamin died, the mm-hmm. patriarch died, he very specifically said in his will, hold on to the homestead at all costs. And we think about that as, did he know somehow that there were people angling to get his property? Or was it just that intrinsic knowledge you have as a person of color in a place where you're not wanted, that there are forces working against you? It's an interesting conundrum. We don't know the answer, but he did outline that in his will. Unfortunately, he was prescient. They could not hold on to it. But what's an interesting story is that their third daughter, Emily, Married a man named John Vincent. They actually had a farm in Fairfield. They had two daughters who lived after losing two daughters and a son and who also became teachers. It's Uh really interesting. Generation after generation, we find these Adair women becoming teachers. Their daughter, Alice, married a man named Edwin Burbridge. Here's where the story gets interesting in the present day. So um, Alice and Edwin have a daughter named Marguerite Doris Burbridge. So the thing about the Adair family, because they're a mixed race family, right? They're African descent, they're Shinnecock native descent. At some point, we believe there's European descent, certainly in the later generations, that by this period of time, they're starting to appear white. Uh And so Marguerite Burbridge becomes a dancer. Mm -hmm. She becomes a professional dancer. So she explains her appearance, which at the time seems a little exotic, by tapping into her native heritage and basically saying, I'm descended. You know, I'm sort of like an Indian princess descended from the Shinnecock tribe. She goes out to the reservation. She does a lot of programs. She becomes the cranberry princess. She becomes a model for the cranberry harvest. Mm. We have really interesting pictures of her posing in a pose that very much looks like the Land O'Lakes butter. Okay. The former maiden of the lake, you oh, yeah. know, Land O'Lakes butter sure. um, with cranberries for the cranberry harvest festival. She becomes the model and she calls herself Mika Mingo. Her name was Marguerite Doris Burbridge. She calls herself Mika, which is her nickname. Mingo is her great, great, great grandmother Ursula's name, Ursula Mingo. Oh, right? Wow. She draws it back. Um, and she doesn't really acknowledge her African ancestry. Her daughter, Annette, Mm, So we find Annette. And so for us as historians, it's a delicate thing, right? Right. To contact somebody and say, hey, here's all this history that you may or may not know about your family that may have you thinking differently about who you are. That's kind of a heavy burden to lay on somebody. So we, we contacted her and said, you know, this is who we are. We've been researching your family. I don't know. If you know, Mm -hmm. but you have family from the 1850s Mm -hmm. in Westport, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And she immediately writes back and she says, it's so funny that you just contacted me because not three days ago on Sunday, my whole family was visiting and I was telling my children that I know that we're from Westport, Connecticut, but I can't get anyone to listen. So she says to us, Mm -hmm. we were there Mm -hmm. actually whatever it was, 10, 15, 20, we went to your museum when it was the Westport Historical Society. And we said, we know we're from Westport. We know where we lived. These are the names. Can you help us? And they said, yeah, we can't help you. We don't, we never heard of them. We wouldn't even know where to look. And what I want to tell you, Greg, you know this, 
but I want to say to our listeners, Annette Thomas and her husband came to seek their ancestors and were told that they couldn't be helped. Their ancestors were buried literally around the corner mm-hmm. from the museum uh, where they came to visit. So, and they have two daughters and a son, one of whom is, can you guess? Annette herself is an educator. She's a ballet dancer who mm-hmm. teaches ballet mm-hmm. for figure skaters. And her daughter, Heather, is also a teacher. Every single generation of these women, five generations of Adair women from the 1850s, educators. So for them, they were able to find their family. People can go on our website to our Black History exhibit and see a picture of the enclosure with all the Thomases there. But they came and they brought us all of the family heirlooms, letters, pictures, the books. And that became the uh, basis for our exhibit legacy, the Adairs of Westport. Right. Incredible story. It's like yeah. a find that historians only could dream of finding, especially finding descendants. Yeah. But um, so that's why I say it's a bittersweet story, right? It's yeah. an amazing story of this perseverance and persistence and success. Right. It's a sad story, yeah. how they were driven out of town. Right. It's an even sadder story that the legacy was kept from them. Right. But it has a happy ending because yeah. we succeeded yes. in doing our jobs of making history whole for the Adairs of Westport. This has been Buried in Our Past, Hidden Histories. We hope you enjoyed today's program. Learn more and support our work at westporthistory.org. You'll love what you learn.